long, guys? Yeah, 25 years uh, in the industry. That's older than some of you guys are, so I'm an old fart. Um, check this out. How many of you guys have seen issues like this in your product development process? Um, long drawn out conversations, meetings, decision makings, and so forth. So what we're gonna be doing today is we're gonna be talking about some of the things that I learned in that long ancient time that I've been around in the industry. And uh, this is kind of the plan for today. So real quickly, I'm gonna give you another quick introduction beyond what uh, we've already heard. Uh, we're gonna talk about some insights that I've gained throughout my career. And then we're gonna talk about Mr. T. Uh, so I got started as an, um, as an industrial designer and uh, quickly progressed through agencies uh, to learn more about interaction design beyond industrial design because as we all know, products don't exist as physical form only anymore. They um, exist as digital experiences beyond their physical entity. Uh, then became a studio manager when I was at Frog, um, then a creative director when I went to uh, Ziba and Intel, and then a user experience director when I went back to Intel. Yes, I did Intel a couple times. Uh, it's a scary kind of experience, but it was extremely cool, extremely exciting. And then finally, uh, today I'm a strategic partner. I have my own business. Um, I work with larger companies and help them in their quest to develop better products and better experiences. So 25 years productizing, uh, doing products, having done interactions, experiences, strategies, and culture. Productizing culture, what do you, what do you mean about that? What do you mean by culture? Well, cult as designers, we make culture. We make cultures in terms of products, interactions, experiences, services. Sorry, that was falling off here. And, but we also make culture in terms of the processes that we create, the people that we work with, the teams that we build and that we are part of, and the clients that we work with. And on that side, on the right-hand side, Often what we do is we instigate shifts, or we have to adapt to culture. So whatever we do, whatever we uh, create, whatever experiences we make, we impact our clients and we impact the world. So we make culture both in the real world and we make culture in terms of the more microcosm of the clients and teams that we work with. So in addition to our first client, this is Wacom. Can you turn it up a little bit? So Wacom is a uh, Japanese country, a company. Uh, and uh, I've been doing quite a bit of work with Wacom. I worked with them for six years, from 2006 to 2012, while I was at Ziba. Uh, and uh, built some cool products with them. I built the uh, Intuos tablet with them. Built uh, the Bamboo line of consumer tablets. And also uh, the Wacom Cintiq. Uh, what you see here, a uh, big uh, display pen tablet uh, that's being used around the world to create all kinds of other cool stuff. Uh, so when you go to Pixar or automotive design studios and so forth, um, they use these products. The products mostly are meant for creative professionals. Uh, so professional illustrators, graphic designers, uh, product designers, and photographers. But it's a unique culture. There's something very special about sketch, these products. I Can you turn it up, please? Free. I just let my mind flow, like opening a little valve and letting everything out. I love seeing things appear, you know? 
there's nothing there and suddenly you have something where there was nothing before. And I love that feeling. So this was Albert Dumont. Uh, the cool thing is about the products that we create, they help other people create. They're the tools for the creators, for the makers of the world. Um, Wacom uh, is located in three countries, three continents, basically. Uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, they're in Dusseldorf in Germany, and, and, and Tokyo, Japan. And that makes for an, unique challenges with that client. They was having to work with three different cultures to begin with, from three different continents, but different capacities and different teams also, and their mindsets. Um, some of the opportunities that I discovered working with Wacom is, should we make an evolution of a product, or should we create a revolution for a product? They never knew. They always um, wanted to do a regular product evolution uh, because they don't really know what a revolution looked like. Um, most of their research was done quantitatively. They never went down and actually sat down with users and did a lot of qualitative research in the past. Um, they um, were very keen on customer needs when, when it comes to creating their products because it's a very intimate product. It's a, the, the name Wacom actually means harmony with technology. And they have a bunch of individual product brands. They have the Cintiq line, they have the Bamboo line, they have the Intuos line, and so forth. So they had in individual audiences as well. And as I said, they're globally distributed. And then there was also always the challenge of hardware design versus software design. And they were treated separately. Um, we were tasked to say, hey, we have this product. It's this great Intuos. We want to redesign the Intuos. Uh, but never came about, ah, you know, it's actually a cohesive, connected experience between hardware and software. So I'm going to tell you a story of the, the Nimble Behemoth, which is the Cintiq product that you see. Um, but I have to rewind a little bit because it started earlier. It started in 2007 when we were asked to do the Intuos 3. Uh, the ask there was, can you redesign Intuos 3? We need to freshen it up. It doesn't look cool anymore. That was the ask. The answer really was a revolution. Uh, as you see, we significantly changed the configuration of the product. We changed how the product presents itself to the user, uh, added a whole lot of functionality to the product. Uh, so there was a reason behind that, and I'll get to that in a second. The same ask was, as we designed, redesigned the Intuos, hey, that's, that's a really good product. We really love it. Uh, we want to use the design language of the Intuos on this old Cintiq 21. Please make us a Cintiq 21 that looks like the Intuos. So the question there was, and the ask by the, by, the, by the company, by Wacom was, can you give us a new design language and keep the old stand? We love it. People love it. It's all good. Well, so we wanted to mash together the, the Wacom uh, Intuos 4, design language, and Cintiq 21. But the answer that we gave them was a revolution. Well, why? Why did we change it so dramatically? Change the stand, change the design, change the interaction. Everything was different. The answer was is that we did a little bit of homework. We actually sat users down in our studio. And the glorious thing here is we actually got the design for ourselves because we had a whole studio, 110 people of creative professionals at our avail, and asked them to use the product while we were actually purposely observing them, seeing what happens to their bodies, how they interact with the product, how they 
what kind of challenges they run into. And we discovered a whole bunch of things that, you know what, the product ergonomically, while it has a stand that makes it nimble and makes it move around, didn't really perform that well. We found things that people were hunched over the product, had a very bad posture, weren't able to center on the work, and so forth. Um, so, how did we change the ask? We said, uh, well, day one. Day one is when we changed the actual destination, the actual trajectory of the product. Because day one, we introduced already a boatload of models, a boatload of explorations uh, to the process. This was day one. This is when we kicked off with the client. And the problem statement really was, as soon as we've done a little bit of homework, that it's not about the design language anymore. But the problem statement was, uh, excuse me, the, on day one we changed the ask because two weeks prior to our kickoff with the client, so this is a time when you normally sign the contracts and get your teams organized and get your uh, ducks in a row with the client, your schedules mapped out, budgets all fixed and so forth, we started doing our homework. So the 14 days prior to the actual kickoff, we figured out how to change the ask. And changing the ask in the uh, product development process changed the trajectory. So it changed the product and the experience that's going to come out at the end. We did a little bit of research where we used these models that we built the 14 days prior to the actual uh, kickoff and tested them with users, asked them for feedback. And we asked not only people that were working at Ziva, but we also asked some of the local, I call them gurus. There were some rock star uh, animators, rock star illustrators and so forth, people that draw for Marvel comics and DC comics and so forth. And we had really intimate conversations with them. But the reason why we could have these conversations with them was that we built a whole bunch of models. We built a whole bunch of tools. So we started building models, making stuff, before we even started working with the client. So the new problem statement there was, all of a sudden, wasn't a redesign of the design language of the Cintiq, but actually the problem statement became 1018. 1018? 1018 means the product has to be able to adjust and be perfect for a user within 10 seconds and be suitable for 10 seconds of use, or many users set at the product for 18 hours, having to change the position and so forth. So we reframed the ask, we reframed the challenge, therefore changed the, directory, uh, the trajectory of the whole project, and had a completely different outcome, had a revolution in the product. So we shifted from simply just sketching after you engage with the client to building already before we uh, engage with the client. Uh, we shifted from what the client asked us to to what the, client, uh, what the customer actually needs. We shifted from evolution to revolution. We shifted from quantitative research to qualitative research. And we shifted from purely having a separate hardware and software design to having integrated hardware and software design. So the first lesson, the first insight really is, is you've got to bring the best tools to the game, best tools that allow you to engage your client and put them onto the right direction and put the product and the experience on the right direction uh, for the consumer. So you've got to start making. Make before day one. Start building right away. The second insight was, 
don't just react to the design brief. Don't uh, do exactly what the client asks. The client often doesn't know what they want. The client often doesn't know what they need. The consumer is the ultimate measuring stick for what the client needs and what the client should be asking for. So be at least a meeting ahead. Work ahead. Be ahead of the client. Be ahead of the team that you're working with. And be in charge. Be in charge of the project. This should be playing a video right now. So the next story is about Intel. So I had Intel both as a client and I worked at Intel several times. And they're an amazing company. They make microscopic uh, products. They're so tiny, you have to have a super strong microscope to actually be seeing. They literally turn sand into gold, take silicone and turn it into uh, lots of money. They are really kind of the stuff of science fiction. Uh, they have factories as big as half of the downtown of Lisbon. Uh, where they have to hire the world's largest crane to make them. One of those factories costs $2 billion to build. They have obviously a massive dominance in the market, and they are truly, uh, I'd say, the world's best manufacturer. And that's interesting, because most of us see Intel as a chip maker, but they really are a factory, a manufacturer. Now, the thing is, they have also an interesting culture. Um, when you come and work at Intel, you walk into these mega offices, we call them cube farms, uh, where you walk down long hallways, only you disappear somewhere into the cubes. And many, many introverts live there, work there, and they do endless tech development. They are super smart people, are very, very impressive people, but they also have a very rigid culture. Things are very much rules and mapped out and agendaed out and everybody has to dis uh, have a strong discipline. There are rules for how to have a meeting, how to take meeting notes, how to behave, how to, there's something called a constructive uh, confrontation and so forth. There are things that are interesting culture uh, pieces to this company. So the challenge there really is like when you work at Intel as a creative professional, it's really 250 of you of creative professional versus 99,750 engineers. So you're a tiny, tiny, tiny little speck constantly swimming upstream against a massive amount of engineering talent and marketing talent. It's certainly a manufacturing mentality at Intel. They are a factory. And the senior management is grown here, meaning uh, the people that lead Intel, the people that guide Intel, are mostly people that never had a different job other than working at Intel. They came out of college, and then they disappear into the Intel culture, and they've never done anything else. And that brings with it its own unique challenges because they don't know how the rest of the world turns or, or works. So like I said, a strong culture, 48 years. And then there's always this question, it's like, hey, we are a chip maker. We make these tiny little super, super powerful things. Why do we care about user experience? So even if you are doing user experience work at Intel, it doesn't necessarily get adapted or it gets recognized or respected. And it's always technology first, because you're a technology company. So the question is, how do you have the right conversations 
about products and user experiences at Intel? How do you get a room full of engineers interested in what you do so their engineering work heads into the right direction, makes the right products, the make right chips and so forth for the next years to come so all of you can have the right kind of experiences, experiences that you expect on your devices. So I'm going to tell you the story of the Ultrabook. When I joined, rejoined Intel in 2012 uh, as a user experience director for the PC client group, PC client group, a uh, very large business group responsible for everything uh, that's a personal device, that's a client device at Intel. And when I came in, Ultrabooks were just a rage, meaning Intel was very excited about it. They were marketing them. You could see them in all of our stores and advertised and so forth. But when I went around and asked about three dozen senior managers at Intel, what's the story of the Ultrabook? What's an Ultrabook? The answer that I always got was, well, it's thin light and has a long battery life. Okay, but that's not a story. That's like describing a car, the story of a car, and you ask the question, what's a car? And you say, well, it's got four wheels, an engine, and seats. That's not the story of a car. So Intel hadn't really comprehended what it means to have a story associated with a product, and therefore being able to give consumers, users, a reason to believe into the product beyond its technical aspects. And at that day, you could still find all computers in all stores and Best Buy's and other big places being sold purely on technical specs. So this is also not a story. So the problem is, yesterday, a decade or two ago, we all bought technology. We, when we went shopping for a computer, we looked at uh, the speed and the memory and, and all that good stuff. That's not how we buy it anymore today. Today, we buy experiences. And experiences have to have a story attached to them. So here's an example of a good story, also the story of a car. I like the quiet before the storm. I like the sound of pure performance. I like the power of nature. to control all of it. So here the story describes the experience of that piece of hardware. It doesn't say it got that many horsepower, and you know what, it's got this much cargo space, and you know, it weighs so much. Nobody cares. What anybody cares about is like, what kind of experiences can I have this, with this hardware, with this car, with this device, so to say. And the story needs to connect emotionally. And it needs to answer the question is, why do I want this product? Why do I want this device? So that's what a story does. It needs to be visceral, it needs to be engaging, it needs to be experiential, and it needs to be aspirational in many paces, obviously depending on the product. This is one of my favorite stories. Thousand songs in your pocket. It doesn't describe the device. It doesn't say it's got a screen and buttons and so much story or memory. It just hits a thousand songs in your pocket. Very simple story. So when I came to Intel and we discovered this problem, uh, what we did, we asked ourselves the question, okay, Intel has invested 300 million bucks into the Ultrabook project. And the 300 million dollars were to be dedicated to 
creating a longer battery life, slimmer components, and a new enhanced consumer experiences. So we asked ourselves the question, how good is that Ultrabook uh, consumer experience? So a little bit of what you heard Alex doing, uh, talking about earlier, a bunch of a uh, uh, customer journey. We uh, did a heuristic audit, except we turned it around. We looked at what the experience is today. Found about 20 uh, cross-business unit user experience expert and put them all together into a team. And they actually volunteered because a lot of people were asking the same questions. So we collected hundreds of customers' feedback, articles, did some stealth in-store visits with like hidden pen cameras and so forth, and did that research. And we did it very quickly. Defined the user journey from initially discovering the product to its use, its daily use, and then moving on beyond the product. And then we said, okay, to really highlight the issue that we have, that you don't have a story, you don't have a consumer experience attached to uh, the Ultrabook, we actually told the heuristic audit and what the, came out of it as a story. So we invented Eli. And Eli was this young, informed developer, um, a creator, and this is what he wanted to do. And then we went in and actually did the audit and told the story from the point of view of, of Eli. So he saw that the Ultrabook ads on TV, he was intrigued, but he didn't really know what it is. He saw, I get it's thin and it's uh, light and it looks sleek, but I'm not clear what makes it ultra. What's so ultra about an Ultrabook? So the insight there was like the spec promise of the Ultrabook sticks, that's thin light and long battery life, but there was no promise of an experience in any of the advertising, in any of the marketing, in any of the messaging. We went on to the explore cycle where Eli was searching for information on this. And he was looking for something that works for him, but he wasn't even sure where to start. It wasn't a, a clearly defined journey, paths, touch points for a consumer to buy an Ultrabook. So he started with these reviews in PC Magazine on Amazon, but the problem was many of those reviews said, gotta wait. There's still problems with these Ultrabooks. So that really impacted how people were initially introduced to the Ultrabook and whether or not they really wanted to buy this product. Then we went into shopping. We went into a store, and there were like 110 choices, 110 different Ultrabooks that kind of sort of looked all the same, that kind of sort of had all the same specs. But as you know, if you've got 110 choices or you've got three choices, it's extremely hard to choose between 110 or three. So he didn't want to compare on technical specs. None of these do anything for him unique or special. So we went on. This was a long study. All the different touch points of the consumer experience. And then summarized it. And you see on the journey, there's lots of red spots, a few green spots. But mostly that critical part right before and after the purchase was bright red. So users are not willing to pay for the Ultrabooks. They haven't heard about it. And the result of that was that the sales forecast was slashed in half. So they invested $300 million just to market it, leave alone all the development cost, which was probably somewhere close to a billion dollars. But nobody took care of actually creating a story, creating the message, creating the promise. Why is this so ultra? So the impact that this had was 
We got a lot of people to listen. We got a lot of people to pay attention because we gave them not a spreadsheet with bullets or, uh, excuse me, a PowerPoint with bullets or a spreadsheet with a whole bunch of different data. We actually told them, hey, you're missing a story by telling a story. So we got the appreciation and respect for the user experience, for this product, by telling the story and by creating an experience. The experience of you actually going being able to go through this journey on your own. We made a website where people could climb through that on their own pace. So the lesson here is bring the X, bring the experience to the user experience. So when you share experiences, when you share your work, you share your user experiences with your clients or your bosses or your peers, make that in and by itself an experience. Don't give them a PowerPoint or give them something kind of, oh, you know, this is the plan we have for experience, and here's a timeline, and this is what you do then, and this is what you do then. No, make that an, an event by itself. So tell the story. So three months later, after we've done this, and I got a little bit of trouble, by the way, for doing this heuristic audit, because um, there was an entire another team out there that had a budget of a million and a half dollars, and 100 people, and a year, one year, to find out the same insights that we found out in eight weeks for zero budget. Some people were pissed off, sorry. Um, they felt threatened, but we got to the point of actually creating the insights, and what followed was that we actually uh, got asked to do a project. Hey, if you guys are so smart about these ultra books, why don't you build us the ultimate ultra book experience? So we got a team together. This is uh, parts of the products that came out of that. And we kind of changed the way we worked at Intel. So Intel, as I showed you earlier, were a whole bunch of cube farms, a whole bunch of individuals and so forth, and we got rid of all that. We um, took over what was called a training room, pretty good sized room, uh, probably about uh, uh, 80 or 90 square meters size room, and made a project room out of it. We just, it was kind of like a hostile takeover. Just moved in, put our stuff on the walls, put a sign on the door, reserved until four months from now or so. And, uh, started working in there, brought people together, and kind of went through a proper user experience process, getting people together, working hand in hand, um, putting your work up in the walls to share the work, uh, make it interactive with everybody. And then kind of accumulated to a point where we had our stuff together to share with the upper management. And kind of changed the rules of the game as well. Upper management means this uh, gentleman named Kirk Scoggin, who ran this $30 billion business unit, who was like the boss of my boss, was invited in to share the, the results of our work. And the normal setup there is, like, he comes in, here comes Kirk, with his entire entourage of people, his team, and they would sit down on the table, and I would wait for you to put a PowerPoint up on the wall. Well, we invited him to our room, to our project space, that I shared with you here earlier. And instead of making this a presentation, we make this more like a gallery walk, a tour. We actually had posters set up on the outside as they walked towards the meeting room that started showing what is the communication from the brands that are going to be bringing this product to the market to their consumers. We made everything visceral, we made everything visual. And as part of that, we made these little vignettes. Big ben, his team these are things that you can all of sudden do with your ultra Mind you, this is 2013, so this is kind of common today, but back then this was new. Being able to kind of broadcast your 
uh, content from your device, from your tablet or Ultrabook to your big screen. Or things like this. Right, two people come together, and all of a sudden, they have a whole new way of sharing content with each other. They can, simply by proximity, by putting these devices next to each other, they connect, they talk to each other, and all of a sudden, you have the ability to share content. So we, we didn't just write about it, but we just tried to say, hey, this is what it would look like. This is really simple. Quick videos. And one important thing is that we discovered is like the way that we get these senior managers to really buy into it wasn't that it wasn't, it wasn't really an argument between us designers and all the technologies or marketers. We wanted the user to speak to these senior managers. And we've seen customer profiles, target personas, and so forth. We had the same thing in our room. And a couple of days before we uh, actually gave the presentation, we had a conversation, my friend Tom and I, and said, hey, how cool would that be to make a video out of that? A first-person video that speaks to our management as I am the consumer and this is what I want. So that's what we did. Um, sorry, this is the room again. This is, by the way, the status quo of how Intel deals with consumers, customers, these very generic kind of personas. They had different ones to their credit. But this is kind of very flat, very boring. It doesn't really speak to you as a decision maker or somebody who writes the checks. So we came up with this. I don't get it. Why do people still buy different computers for work, home, or on the go? Who works like that anymore? Everyone I know is constantly creating, getting inspired, killing a deadline, growing their startup, and sharing pretty much everything. We're collaborators, co-creators, cultural consumers, and we're not interested in a bag full of devices that make us compromise. Don't get me wrong, I do love collaborating with my cohorts in the studio, but that doesn't all happen from nine to five, at a desk, or even in one city. I'm just as likely to be contributing to my friend's fashion blog in London or co-producing an album for a band from Japan you don't even know you love yet. So we're letting really, the consumer speak. Work, life, play, we're letting the consumer speak everywhere. directly to it's our client, directly to our decision maker. It's, more about moving it's really not a discussion anymore who's right or wrong, because our decision makers would not argue with that. When they saw this video for the first time, they stood there first with really like, wow, these guys made a video about the consumer. And, but then they realized, hey, this is the best thing, because now we really understand. We understand who we're building this product for. We understand who we're building these experiences for. We understand that we need to build experiences to be able to define products. And we understand that we need to pursue experiences to define technology, technology moving forward. Because how do I know at Intel what I developed today, which, by the way, takes three to four years development time when it comes to Intel chipsets, how do I know today what's going to be relevant in three or four years? And the only way you know that it's by probing into the experience and developing the experience and being purposeful about that. So that's kind of really what we changed in the game. And the other thing that we changed, and these are the posters that I talked about. This is what, when Kirk was walking into the uh, meeting room, into the project room. We put these things up in the hallway. And they were like mock-ups of what people would see in the outside world. So this is how there, Intel's customers, which is the Dells and the, uh, the Microsofts and the Acers and the Asus's and so forth, would talk to their consumers, to their customers. And they tie in directly to the experiences we shared earlier. This is what 
for example, the one of the vignettes that you saw. So from both sides, all of a sudden we turned up the contrast. This is how you communicate to the world and how you let the consumer talk to your client. Here's a little technical. So here are the things that we shifted with Intel. And we had a lot of conversation about that in our panel earlier, about how do you get a big machine, big corporation to make shifts. This is one example. Uh, so we shifted from technology first to user experience first. We shifted from writing specifications to writing stories. Uh, nowadays, I've gotten into, when we did a little bit at the workshop, writing manifestos, consumer manifestos. We shifted from working as individuals to, shifting, uh, to working as teams. The cube moved into the project room. People actually, directly when they came to work, they never even went to their cube, to their office anymore. They came directly into the project room. This is where everybody hung out. This is where everybody had fun. And we shifted from producing PowerPoints with endless bullets, that's what Intel is really into, to making user experience mockups and product mockups. And instead of talking about the user, we let the user talk to them. So those were the big shifts. And the insight here really is, is that, you know, show them. Don't tell them. Show them in every which way. Make it as real and as visceral as possible, as early as possible. Kind of like what we talked about earlier with Wacom, where we build products and models right away. But make the user real. Make the market real. Use the voice of the user and communicate the voice to the user. Next client, Sirius XM. Well, these are the two rock stars. Sound? Thank you. So SiriusXM, many of you in Europe might not know it. They're a satellite radio company. Coast to coast, 24-7, 365, uninterrupted radio. Anywhere. It's subscription-based. They have hundreds of channels. They have millions of subscribers. Dozen of genres, it's commercial free, like I said, coast to coast. And all the stars, all the rock stars come there. Anybody they use anybody goes to SiriusXM and works with them. They're headquartered in downtown New York, have studios in the 50th floor of, of some skyscrapers where these stars come. Um, we develop products for them for both the home, car, and uh, for mobile. And What's unique about SiriusXM as, as a satellite radio company, you guys know Spotify, you guys know the Pandoras of the world. So Pandora is driven by an algorithm. Spotify is driven by the user, it's curated by the user. What's unique about SiriusXM, it's created by stars, by tastemakers, by real people, DJs, 24-7, put that music together for you. We develop products, hardware products like this, for cars that go into cars. Uh, get installed like this, products in the home, and for all kinds of platforms, web, iOS, Android, and so forth, to bring their content to the world. And we were responsible for really the entire ecosystem of these products, meaning we wanted to create a seamless radio e ecosystem and a seamless listening experience. Span from car to home to mobile. So the opportunities there were, these guys were in New York, and they were literally the New York City Cigar Club. You had meetings with these guys. They were old guys sitting in a room smoking cigars. I'm not kidding you. Or they brought you to an expensive steakhouse 
where you had like an $80 steak, and then you went outside and smoked cigars. Um, very much management-driven decisions. So it wasn't like the lowest common denominator we made the decision who was closest to, to the uh, actual expertise, but the top bosses made the decisions. And they didn't really know about their customer needs and desires uh, because they were the only player in the market, the only game in town when it came to satellite radio. Big opportunity was what I showed you earlier, to create a seamless, cohesive experience as an ecosystem, and it had zero in-house design. So the problem there was is what we're talking to these guys, media executives. Imagine these guys smoking cigars. And this was us, we're the design pros. The problem is, it's a challenge, is, is, is the language barrier. The language that we use in our work did not jive with the language that these media executives know. So we talked in wireframes and concepts and structures and, and sketches, whiteboard sketches in a while. They, they looked at whiteboards and like, oh my god, what, what are you talking about? What's a whiteboard? So, however, these guys were the decision makers. Decision makers who ultimately determined what experience is going to go to the market. So for a couple of years working with these guys, I worked with them for six years, did all their products, all their content delivery systems, constantly battling. We have an ideal solution here, they wanted this. We have another ideal solution here, they wanted this. And that was our expertise versus their expertise as the media bigwigs. So they made decisions on personal preferences, and they wrote the checks, so they were always right, unfortunately. Now, they didn't understand this, so we did away with it. And instead started making high fidelity mock-ups. Kind of again, same tune, make really early, make really deep, make really high fidelity mock-ups. Because once we had those in hand, we could talk to the users, and all it, was, all it took was, in Portland, find 10 CSXM users, interview these people, and get their feedback. We gave them quick little mock-ups like this, where they could play with by themselves. It felt quite real to them. It was a good prototype about what kind of experience you would have as a web player for SiriusXM content. And then we asked them a bunch of questions. And the feedback we got, hey, you know, even the crazy monkey got it. It's very easy to use, very intuitive, whatever it is. But the feedback that we got all of a sudden allowed us to have the ultimate check writer speak. Because it's not those media wigs, big wigs, the cigar smoking dudes, it's the users that write the checks. The 30 million users that spend 20 bucks a month or so to get CSXM content. So we shifted from the cigar club decisions to user-driven decisions, from sharing features to sharing experiences, from making wireframes to making high-definition prototypes, from creating abstract concepts of for designs to creating it in a common language, to what Sana talked about earlier, and from PowerPoint to interactive kind of presentations. And the big insight here was really, you gotta let your client play. As soon as you have something, you put something in front of them, they can play with, their decision-making process changes, the entire interaction changes, and because you now have created a common ground. 
everybody can understand the thing on the table or the thing on the screen if you do it right. Doesn't matter if you are uh, the guy who's sweeping the floor or the CEO of a you know, $5 billion company. That brings me to my final insight, Mr. T. Everybody know who Mr. T is? Okay, well, that's not that Mr. T. Um, I want to go back, we'll get there in a second. I want to go back to like, the total user experience and, and, the, and the user journey. So there are a lot of, lots of things, lots of moving parts uh, when you create a user experience journey. Lots of things that need to get aligned. And they need to get aligned around a cohesive story that then delivers the best user experience. So I heard Simon Sinek being uh, quoted earlier, kind of the same thing here. Promise, offering, and delivery is what you, what you create as part of a user experience. Promise by the brand. What is the offering that the brand provides? And then how is that delivered? Which is the why, the what, and the how? Lots of moving parts, service design, product design, software development, marketing, interaction design, manufacturing, and you name it. And all these things need to be brought into alignment, which is kind of really hard when you have lots of different entities working on that. When you have one group that's maybe part of your team that works on the industrial design and interaction design and have another group that talks about the retail experience of the service design. So keeping those things aligned is often left to the client. And as I told you earlier, that client doesn't have any in-house design services so or doesn't know how to manage that very often. So it can get messy very quickly. So my advice is become Mr. or Mrs. T. And that's Mr. T. Mr. T is somebody who has a deep root in one area of expertise, so in this case in product design, but has a big breadth of other experiences and capabilities and uh, training. So what I'm asking you to do and what I'm advising you to do is to become a generalist, right? Because there's really only a design product. We design larger experiences. And to do it well, we must understand all aspects of that full consumer journey or that full uh, user experience. So maybe next time when we do this conference, we don't call it productize, but we're gonna, it doesn't really roll off the tongue. Experience size, something like that. Um, just to summarize real quickly, and man, I'm just right on time. I've got 31 seconds left. Make before day one at least one meeting ahead. Bring the X to the UX, the experience to the user experience, tell the story. Use the voice of the user or use the voice to the user by the brand. Let your clients, your teams, your bosses play so they can understand what you're dealing with and what the consumer needs to deal with and become a journalist. That's it. Thank you.